Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. Got another great story for you today, folks. And this one takes place almost entirely on the high seas. The story of one of the greatest and biggest battleships to ever sail the wild waters of the North Atlantic. The battleship Bismarck. This is another story from across the pond. And it's one of my favorite stories of all time. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved this story. It's kind of odd, considering the circumstances of it. But I guess my fascination is the history behind it all. You see, this is another story that so few people nowadays have even heard of. Unless you're a history buff like me, it's probably not your thing. That's fine. But if we don't pay attention, the past will slip beneath the waves of our minds and sink to the bottom abyss of time and become forgotten. This is exactly what the left across the globe are determined to see happen. And that's why I'm your guide to hearing history in a non-boring manner. I hope. A way to spark a deeper interest in it all. So without further ado, let's dive down and hear the fascinating tale of the German battleship, the Bismarck. The ship was named for Otto von Bismarck, Germany's bullish chancellor for nearly 20 years in the latter half of the 19th century. A German hero, it seemed fitting that a ship of this magnitude should be christened with such a name. The Bismarck was laid down on July 1, 1936. Don't worry, folks. I'm a bit of a land lover myself, and I had to look up what laid down meant. It means when the construction of the ship was first started. Her overall length was 823 feet and 6 inches. Yeesh, they are precise. And her width was 118 feet and 1 inch. Did I just say something about them being precise? They had to add an extra inch to it. She had a 30-foot draft, meaning the distance between the waterline and the bottom of the ship. So when you're standing in the bottom of the ship, the very bottom of the ship, you have to go 30 feet just to get to the top of the waterline. That's how... Deep it was. I mean, can you imagine the size of this thing? And you, I mean, we're, we're still talking about dimensions. Um, roughly, roughly 40% of her weight was steel armor, and she carried 8,700 tons of fuel, which would allow the ship to sail for over 9,000 nautical miles. Her top speed was just over 30 knots. She had eight massive 15-inch guns that could launch a 2,000-pound shell over 20 miles. The Bismarck also had numerous other guns on board. And when I say guns, I mean artillery, not small arms. Her standard weight was 41,700 tons. When she was fully loaded with armaments and men, her gross weight was 50,300 tons. The Bismarck was home to 103 officers and 1,962 enlisted sailors. Her crew was told she was indestructible, and they believed it. No one wanted to lock horns with the Bismarck, for she was that imposing of a ship. 
The Bismarck was a new class of battleship. Only one other ship of her magnitude was ever constructed by Nazi Germany, the Tirpitz. The Bismarck was one of Hitler's pride and joys. I guess even a psycho like him can sometimes get some thrills. In February of 1939, Valentine's Day to be precise, the Bismarck was officially christened and slid into the water of Hamburg Harbor for the first time. Construction was still being completed as well as training for the sailors ordered to report for duty on her decks. But she was now in the water and that meant completion was almost done. On May 5th, 1941, Adolf Hitler, the Führer, I wonder if he was like, you know, like a furious all the time. <laughs> oh, y'all, come on, folks, it's just a joke, relax. Adolf Hitler, the Führer, visited the ship and inspected it stem to stern, top to bottom, from the mizzenmast to the poop deck, from the whatchamacallit to the jahuzzi. Well, let's just say he looked it over and was greatly impressed, and he left a profound memory on two certain sailors that are central characters in Dr. Ballard's book, Exploring the Bismarck. When he reached the rear gunnery computer room, he wanted to get a closer look at the radar detection computer. In order to do so, he placed his right hand on seaman Eide Eich and his left hand on seaman Hans Jochnat. After Hitler left, they were able to joke about the experience and also talked about how proud they were that their leader had personally inspected their battle station. I do wonder, however, if they felt the coldness of Hitler's personality, if they ever knew how evil and sadistic his mind truly was. Nobody will ever know, I guess. Good or bad, when a leader of such magnitude visits a lowly gunnery room, it's bound to be the highlight of those involved. In the early morning hours of May 19th, two weeks after Hitler's visit, the Bismarck set sail on her maiden voyage. The Bismarck's orders were to cause havoc in the North Atlantic. Convoys from Canada and the U.S. were the only lifeline that England had at the time. For by May of 1941, England stood alone against the might of Nazi Germany. Because remember, America did not enter World War II until December 8th of 1941. Hitler declared war on the U.S. on December 11th of 1941. So we're talking seven months prior to America entering the war. The Bismarck was to be set loose on the convoys and cause even more destruction than the superiority of the German U-boats. Under the command of Admiral Gunther Lutjens and Captain Ernst Lindemann, she would set sail and obliterate the convoys, which would make England surrender. Lutjens was a dedicated and decorated naval officer who served Germany above any political systems, who happened to be in charge. When the anti-Semitic views from the Nazi leaders came down the wire to the admirals and captains in the Kriegsmarine, Lutjens protested. He saw no reason for the discrimination and publicly stated so and even ignored the orders he received to remove Jewish officers from their posts. If he had lived longer, no doubt he would have been ordered to commit suicide or face public execution by firing squad. We'll never know because, well, you'll hear about that later on. Real quick, one other highly commendable thing about Lutjens was when Hitler came on board to inspect the ship, 
he and his staff gave the Nazi salute. But Lutjens gave the traditional salute of the Navy, defying Hitler to his face pretty much. I think it's safe to say that this man had balls and stood up for his beliefs no matter what the consequences would be. Her other commander was Captain Ernst Lindemann, another skilled naval officer who had barely been to sea. But he was a brilliant tactician and had been a teacher for three years at the Naval Gunnery School in Kiel. He had then been promoted to lieutenant commander and served with distinction throughout the 1930s. By the end of the 30s, he was becoming frustrated with the fact that his positions had never allowed him to face the enemy. It was about this time that he learned he would become the captain of the Bismarck, a position he felt honored to be offered by the high command. Despite never having captained a ship before, he was the Reich's leading gunnery expert and knew how to command, and he was well respected by the crew of the Bismarck. Like so many other Germans, Lindemann embraced the Nazi regime. But early on, a lot more did so without thinking of how monstrous they truly were. They did so because Hitler was telling them to believe in their country again. Remember, Germany had lost World War I, and it had cost them dearly for it. When Hitler came to power, some knew he was a psycho from the start. But far too many wouldn't catch on till it was too late to stop him and his cronies. Captain Lindemann was another man whose views might have changed as things progressed. But at the time of his death, he seemed to be a dedicated Nazi. In the early hours, roughly two in the morning or so, of May 19th, the Bismarck weighed anchor and began her mission. Codenamed Operation Runebung, or Operation Rhine for English speakers. She was joined in the late morning by heavy cruiser Prince Eugen, who would accompany the Bismarck and aid in destroying convoys. The mission was top secret. Only her commanders and the German Admiralty knew of her mission. Not even Hitler knew till three days after her departure. The British knew the Bismarck was on the move even before Hitler did. When he finally found out at a naval conference at his home in Berchtesgaden, he was not a happy camper. He wanted the ships called back, probably because he wanted to wait till the Tirpitz was ready to sail, but his admiralty told him it would be impossible to call them back now. Hitler finally relented, but spoke bluntly saying, I have a bad feeling about this. The Bismarck and Prince Eugen were by now in a harbor in southern Norway and were making battle modifications to the ships. Prince Eugen refueled, but the Bismarck only painted the ship a dull gray to camouflage it better with the North Atlantic. She did not refuel. A decision that would prove costly only a few days later. On May 21, 1941, the German squadron set sail under the cover of heavy fog and made their way for the Denmark Strait, which is the passage of water between Greenland and Iceland. They thought they had been able to slip away unnoticed, but the British were watching them with the eyes of a hawk. Or recon planes, however you want to call it. I don't really care. While they had been able to slip away with the fog, the British quickly knew they were on the move and the British Admiralty knew only one ship was up to the task of facing the Bismarck, the pride of the British fleet, the HMS Hood. 
The Hood was a battlecruiser. Not quite technically a battleship. It had the armament of a battleship, but the speed of a cruiser. If you've ever played the board game Battleship, the cruiser was a three-peg ship. Just for fun reflection. And maybe teach your kids that game. It'll be a fun game for them. The Hood was commanded by Admiral Lancelot Holland, and she and the brand new battleship, the Prince of Wales, left the British port of Scapaflow and raced to intercept the Bismarck and Prince Eugen before they broke out freely into the North Atlantic. Both the British and the German squadrons were on high alert. All through the nights of May 23rd, all the sailors remained at their posts, fearing that at any moment they would meet and commence the battle each of them had dreamed of. But at the same time, each of them had dreaded. You see, the sailors of the Bismarck were just as terrified of the Hood as the British were of them. Throughout all their war games, the Germans had practiced against the Hood, for it was the toughest ship in the British Navy, and they wanted to beat the best, so why not practice against the best? If they could sink the mighty Hood, they thought nothing could stop them. And then it happened. Just after 5.30 on the morning of May 24th, the two sides first saw each other and prepared for battle. One key thing to note here is the distance between the ships when they began to engage one another. When you go to the beach and you look out across the ocean, you're able to see roughly three miles or so. That's about as far as the human eye can see under most circumstances. The Hood and the Bismarck were over 15 miles apart. The only way the crews could see each other was through the aid of high-powered binoculars. Can you just imagine that fear that these guys had to be dealing with? They can't even see their enemy, and yet they're about to engage in battle with them. Now, Lutjens did not want to engage the enemy. He was under strict orders to avoid any and all contact with British warships. But the British were determined to fight, and even fired the first shots. Unfortunately for them, they had unknowingly fired at the wrong ship. What they thought was the Bismarck turned out to be the Prince Eugen. You see, the Germans had switched positions during the night to deliberately confuse the British. It was just a brilliant strategical move. However, it didn't make much of a difference as the first salvo from the Hood and the Prince of Wales were both long meaning they went past their targets. On board the Bismarck, however, seaman Josef Stotz said that when they heard the shells coming at them and then overhead, he said the force of the trajectory ripped the scream from your body. It was indescribable from the air pressure, the fear of not knowing where the shells were going to land, but it was mainly the fear. Luchens still hesitated to open fire, but Captain Lindemann had finally had enough saying plainly, and I quote, I will not have my ship blown out from under my ass. This finally persuaded Luchens to commence firing on the British ships. The HMS Hood had one major weakness, and Admiral Holland knew what it was. In order to give a faster rate of speed, her deck armor was much lighter than it should have been. But that cost money, and the British needed more ships as opposed to heavier deck armor for one ship. So, Holland raced towards the Bismarck at full speed, hoping that if he got close enough, anything the Bismarck fired would hit the side of the ship, which was more protected. The first salvo from the Bismarck was short. 
Her next salvo was long. Dr. Robert Ballard explains in his book, Exploring the Bismarck, the following when the ship opened fire with her eight 15-inch guns. For those on the bridge and the gunnery control stations, or worst of all, the turrets themselves, each salvo was a bone-rattling, mind-numbing experience, like being next to a bomb going off. The roar was deafening. The sudden increase in air pressure made it almost impossible to breathe, and the thick brown smoke choked and blinded the sailors in those positions. This was the same for both sides. On the Bismarck's third salvo, she scored a direct hit. The hood was shaking quite forcibly, and the entire crew was knocked off their feet. It was quickly followed by a fourth salvo, which obliterated the observation tower above the compass room. Dead men were falling everywhere. Some were beyond recognition. What happened next was terribly horrific. The fires that had broken out on the hood from Bismarck's third salvo had ignited one of the magazines in the lower part of the ship. Suddenly, fire shot upwards from the bowels of the ship, ripping her in half. Simultaneously, the bow and the stern of the hood went upwards, and within moments, she disappeared from the surface of the Atlantic. My God. Poor devils. Sailors and officers from both ships stood in stunned silence, not really sure if they truly believed what had just happened. Of a crew of 1,419 sailors on board the hood, only three survived. This was thought to be due to a boiler exploding as the hood sank, propelling the men upwards. It was only by the grace of God that Ted Briggs, Bob Tilburn, and Bill Dundas lived to see another day. The battle had only begun eight minutes prior. At first, many of the German sailors cheered the fact that the hood was gone, but then they quieted, thinking of all the men who had just perished mere moments ago and they then thought how it could very easily happen to them. The captain on board the Prince of Wales had the ghastly duty of wiring the British Admiralty with a short, uncoded message. Hood sunk. The news devastated the entire British forces. Not the Hood. It couldn't possibly be the Hood. But deep down they knew it was true. No one would dare play a joke with such a message. And it sparked an outrage and a determination to find Bismarck and sink her. Prime Minister Winston Churchill told the Admiralty, You are commanded to sink the Bismarck. Go and do it. That is all. Put as many ships as you can muster out for this mission. We dare not allow Bismarck to escape. And so they did. Admiral Tovey, who was now in charge of the British fleet, immediately left Scapaflow, which is a body of water just north of mainland Scotland, and had 13 ships at his disposal. From those already trailing the Bismarck, to ships anchored at Scapaflow with him, to even some from Gibraltar. They were following Churchill's orders to the letter. 
They did end up having a small bit of luck on their side. During the battle, the Bismarck had also taken a hit, and this had flooded the bow's boiler rooms, and had cut off valuable fuel oil from being accessed. This caused her to have to sail at a slower speed, which allowed the British to keep eyes on her. The damage ended up being enough that the only thing left for Luchens to do was to sail for the nearest German port and make the necessary repairs, so as to continue on with her original mission. But as I just mentioned, she was being closely watched by the Suffolk and Norfolk, and had a hard time shaking them off. Finally, Luchens decided to separate, and let Prince Eugen sail out for commerce raiding while Bismarck sailed for the safety of Brest and France. To do this, he made a wide loop, kind of like a fishhook, back towards the trailing ships and then back on down towards France. The plan worked perfectly. Prince Eugen was able to escape and the Bismarck became a ghost. The British frantically searched for Bismarck, trying to relocate her with any means necessary. But in the long run, it would be Luchens himself that would give their position away. Not realizing that he had been able to shake off the British, he wired the admiralty of his plans and accidentally gave away his position. The Bismarck was officially relocated on May 26th, two days after the sinking of the Hood, by a British Catalina flying boat recon plane, and they radioed a further detailed report of her location and sailing direction. Before this, remember, Luchens had not realized he had given the British a slip, so he had announced to the crew that they were going back for repairs, and that the British had no intention of letting them reach port. Arto and Arto, seamen of the Bismarck, the people of Germany are with you, and we will fight until our gun barrels glow red hot. For us seamen, the question now is victory or death. Great pep talk there, buddy. Yeah, that'll cheer the boys up for sure, said no man ever. The British were now ready to pounce. From the aircraft carrier Ark Royal, swordfish torpedo bombers were sent out in order to cause damage and havoc to the Bismarck. These planes were more or less ancient. Despite the fact that flying had only been invented less than 40 years prior, in flying ingenuity, they were outdated. But it was all the British could use and it turned out to be enough. The swordfish were able to fly low and slightly slower than normal planes, and that was their ticket in. At around 20.55 hours, the alarm bells on board the Bismarck began to sound. Her anti-aircraft crews raced to their posts and opened fire, but her lowest line of fire was above the swordfish. Bismarck then began to zigzag to avoid torpedoes, and then it happened. While locked to port, a torpedo struck Bismarck in her only weakness, the rudder system. The blast jammed the rudders to the point of unmaneuverability. Instead of heading south to the safety of France, she was now headed north-northwest, directly towards the oncoming British ships. The fate of the Bismarck was now set. Lutjen signaled headquarters at 2140 on the 26th. Ship unmaneuverable. We will fight to the last shell. Long live the Fiora. Every man on board knew the end of the ship's life, as well as many of their own, was close. Can you imagine the fear those sailors must have had? 
In an attempt to boost the doomed men's morale, a message was announced over the loudspeaker. men of the Bismarck, we have just received a message from Naval Command in Paris. U-boats are racing to join us, and at dawn, 81 bombers will take off from France. The message did not raise morale. The men knew it was doubtful such a thing could happen. But then, a few moments later, the loudspeaker blared again. Arctur Arctur, men of the Bismarck, a message from the Fuhrer. All Germany is with you. What can be done will be done. Your performance of duty will strengthen our people in the struggle for its destiny. Again, the pep talk failed. Young Lieutenant Commander Mullenheim Reckberg knew it was hopeless, but he said nothing because he saw no need to discourage his men any further. As the British Armada got closer, many of the sailors laid eyes on the Bismarck for the first time. They were struck with awe and amazement at her beauty and power, but they knew they had to sink her, no matter how magnificent she looked. She had to be destroyed. At 0847 hours on May 27, 1941, the final battle began. The day was cloudy and the seas were rough as the Bismarck made her last stand. The HMS Rodney opened fire first with the flagship King George V just after. Both salvos missed, but with the Bismarck steering out of commission, it wouldn't take long to zero in on her. Bismarck was able to return fire, but also missed, narrowly though. The Rodney's next salvo scored direct hits. One of the shells knocked out her forward main guns. The other tore through the superstructure of the ship, obliterating the foretop gunnery control station, damaging the bridge and the main fire control director. It is likely that this blast killed Admiral Luchens and possible Captain Lindemann but that answer remains but to God and the sea that keeps them. Lieutenant Commander Mullenheim Reckberg now became the eyes of the Bismarck's aft guns. Through his gun director, he ordered four salvos fired, all of which missed. Before he could fire a fifth salvo, the British scored another direct hit, which destroyed the gunfinder's sights. The Bismarck was now blind, crippled, and her guns useless. The end was coming quickly. Just after Bismarck's final salvo, the telephone rang in the engine room. The order that Lieutenant Commander Gerhard Yonuk received was to prepare to scuttle the ship, which meant set explosives to flood the compartments and sink the ship deliberately so it would not fall into enemy hands. He had prayed he would never receive those orders, but now he had and he carried them out before he and his men left their stations. Lieutenant Commander Reckberg and a handful of his men made their way up a cable shaft and up onto the ship's deck. What they saw was absolute horror. The ship's main guns were twisted pieces of metal now. Shell holes were all over the deck, and the blood. So much blood and oil ran over the decks, it made it hard to walk. Over a thousand men were dead by this point, and the battle had only begun 45 minutes prior. The men made their way carefully around the deck trying to avoid slipping into the sea and also trying to drown out the agonizing screams of the wounded and dying around them. Reckberg and a handful of others waited till the Bismarck began to list on her port side before they inflated their life jackets and prepared to jump. 
It was then that Reckberg noticed that the Bismarck's battle standard was still flying. He ordered the men to salute the flag as a tribute to their fallen comrades before they all jumped into the icy sea. They joined hundreds of their fellow sailors trying to swim away from the ship as fast as they could so as not to get sucked down with her. Heinz Juchnat and his friends had all survived up to this point, although now in the water they were separated. Heinz turned to watch the ship go down, and he believed he saw Captain Lindemann begging his orderly to jump overboard to save his own life. The young man refused. Lindemann saw he could not persuade him, and they made their way along the bow. And as the ship slowly turned on its side, Captain Lindemann saluted and went down with his ship. The honor that this man had should make anyone salute him. No matter what his beliefs were, he was a man of honor, fulfilling the age-old saying, the captain goes down with his ship. Whether or not the story of Lindemann dying in such an honorable way is debated, Heinz Juchnat might have been wrong, as he was in the choppy sea and a good distance away by this point. It's possible he was mistaken, but I like to think that he wasn't. With the Bismarck beneath the waves, hundreds of German sailors now floated in the oily flaming sea, praying and hoping against hope that the British would take pity on them and rescue them from certain death. And their prayers were answered. The HMS Dorsetshire came up and dropped rope lines to the sailors. Dozens of men grabbed for the lines and slowly they were pulled up to safety. Many British sailors offered them some rum as they were brought on deck, partially out of courtesy, but also because I like to think they knew the men needed to get the oily-coated seawater out of their bellies. Rum doesn't mix well with seawater, and the men emptied their stomachs of everything, and many felt quite relieved afterwards. I know that's a little gross, but uh, consider what the men had gone through, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to them, besides being rescued from the sea. At one point during the rescue, a young British midshipman noticed a sailor whose arms had been blown off, trying to grab a lifeline with his teeth. In a moment of sympathy and compassion, he jumped over the side and tried to save him without the thought of the danger it proved to himself. He almost had the man to safety when the ship moved unexpectedly and he lost the man back into the ocean. The young midshipman whose name was Joe Brooks, barely made it back on board himself. This attempt to save an enemy soldier's life greatly impressed the already rescued sailors. Recorded in a 1989 National Geographic documentary, one of the Bismarck survivors said this, The name Joe Brooks meant something to us. Our government should have given that man a medal for humaneness. But why had the ship moved? The reason behind it was because they thought they had seen movement and believed it to be a German U-boat. They were sitting dead in the water and were the perfect targets. They decided they couldn't risk that chance and started their engines. The German sailors, still in the water, cried frantically for the ships to come back. Those still clinging to lifelines clung even tighter. Those left behind in the water slowly watched their only hope of survival sail away. And then, as the day went on, one by one, they succumbed to either their wounds or hypothermia and sank beneath the waves to join their ship and other fallen comrades in the icy watery depths of the North Atlantic. 
Out of a crew of 2,206 men, only 116 were rescued. 111 by the British and 5 the following day by German forces. The next day, one of the German sailors rescued died from his wounds. He had lost one of his arms and had been severely burned. That afternoon, all of the rescued sailors of the Bismarck and most of the Dorsetshire gathered on deck for the funeral of the German sailor. At first, many of the Germans didn't know what was going on, but they soon saw that their fallen comrade was prepared for sea burial by being wrapped in a German Imperial naval flag. How the British got it is a mystery. The ship's chaplain read from the Bible, and after he was finished, the bugler played the last post, while the Germans stood at attention in revered silence. They were permitted to give the Nazi salute, and then one of them played the German lament song, Ich hat eine Kameraden, or I had a comrade. This ended up being too much for many of the German survivors, who by this time had seen almost all of their fellow sailors killed, and many broke down weeping. Some who fought back tears saw that many of the British sailors were also crying. This shows to me the true meaning of camaraderie. Sailors who had just yesterday were trying to kill each other now openly wept with each other and comforted one another through it all. It is truly amazing. The rescued German sailors spent the rest of the war as POWs first in England and then in Canada. Many liked Canada so much that they moved back there after the war. How's that for irony? After the Bismarck was sunk, it passed into legend, largely in part due to help from the British reports. They spoke of how magnificent she looked, how she was commanded by such skilled commanders like Luchens and Lindemann, and how gallantly she had fought in her final battle. British novelist C.S. Forrester wrote a book entitled The Last Nine Days of Bismarck, published in 1959. And this, in turn, inspired a song and a movie. The German battleship that's making such a fuss. We gotta sink the Bismarck cause the world depends on us. Hit the decks are running, boys, and spin those guns around. When we find the Bismarck, we I was just a kid when I first heard the song Sink the Bismarck by late country great Johnny Horton. He wrote the song in 1960 for the upcoming movie under the same title, which was released that same year. The movie is a great dramatization of the real events, but I have one major criticism of it, and in fact, many film historians agree with me on this. 
and it is the way they portray Luchens. They portray him as a diehard Nazi, which we now know to be false. I think, though, back then, they knew it, but they decided to make him the villain of the picture, and like so many other war pictures back then, there were many inaccuracies. One thing the movie did do in a rather clever way was they brought in Ed Murrow to more or less narrate. You see, during the war, he had been a correspondent broadcasting from London, giving reports of the Blitz and the hunt for the Bismarck. It was a brilliant move, and the movie was well received. Though I do hope this story is adapted again, because of how many more details have been released from British intelligence and the discovery of the wreck. Which is the perfect segue, don't you think? Now, you see, Dr. Robert Ballard, the man who discovered the Titanic, was out searching for the wreck of the Bismarck. He had become greatly intrigued by the battleship story and hoped he would be able to find it. He had 12 days to find the wreck before the money allocated for the mission ran out. This was a typical time span for missions such as these. They set out on May 27, 1989, 48 years to the day that Bismarck was last seen. They had a basic idea of where to search for. The British were very precise in their coordinates, even if there were multiple locations suggested for where the ship was officially sunk. Ballard felt his chances were 50-50 at best, but luck proved to be with him because he had a strategy. He needed to find the debris trail. If he found that, he knew he would find the wreck. On June 6th, they found the beginning traces of it. They followed it for two days. Then, on the morning of June 8th, a large white shape came into the monitor screen. This is how he described his reaction to finding it. Then I saw the gun. No, two gun barrels jutting from a turret. We've got it! I yelled so loud that I could be heard two corridors away. This was a dream come true for any underwater explorer. Finding the wreck they had been searching for for almost two weeks. Might not sound like a long time, but as Ballard described, when you're staring at nothing but mud for hours and hours, the search becomes tedious. But they no longer had to worry about it, because they had found it. They spent the next several days exploring every inch of the ship, and they were amazed by her magnitude. Even though all four sets of the 15-inch guns had detached when she had gone down, they saw the anchor chain disappearing into a large shell hole, sea anemones decorating the massive anti-aircraft guns, and the stern of the ship completely shorn off, likely due to torpedo damage. Then they saw the awful realization that Bismarck was a Nazi warship when the swastikas appeared on camera. Although they had been painted over in 1941, over 48 years of being underwater had uncovered them once again. The searchers looked on in somber silence. A few days later, the searchers gathered for memorial service and tossed a rope wreath into the water. They then stood for a minute of silence. Dr. Ballard assured the German people that the Bismarck wreck would be a war grave and that the water surrounding her belonged to Germany. This is guaranteed under international law. 
His video footage was later shown to survivors of the Bismarck, and they marveled at the sight. The grandeur of the ship had remained largely intact, and the memories. Oh, no doubt the memories it brought back. I can't even begin to imagine the emotions that ran through their minds. Dr. Ballard has kept the location of the wreck a secret, only sharing it with his superiors and fellow oceanographers. The reason behind this decision was to keep treasure hunters away. For remember, the Bismarck is the grave of over 2,000 men. This story is such an important one. Because nowadays, when people hear about Germany during World War II, they think all who fought for Germany were Nazis. While this is indeed true, it needs a great big asterisk with it. Because when you watch documentaries about World War II, like the Bismarck or perhaps the Blitz, they interview German soldiers, sailors, and pilots. They were Germans who were fighting for their country's honor. That's how a lot of wars back then were told to the fighters, and are still today in some respects. Fight for your country's honor. If we lose, your honor will be lost as well. This is a good motivation for many. Also, like so many Americans who joined World War II, Germany was in dire ruin after the First World War, and the only way young men could help their families was by joining the armed forces. The common soldier didn't know much. It was those in the Gestapo and the SS that knew the truth and aided in its atrocity. That's why they were hunted down, caught, tried, and convicted by the war crimes courts in the aftermath of World War II. The enlisted and or drafted men of the Kriegsmarine, Luftwaffe, and Wehrmacht were allowed to go home to their loved ones, rebuild, and return to their lives before the war, but with a heavy conscience for they knew they would forever be looked at like the monsters who murder millions of innocent people. But with the help of documentaries like Sink the Bismarck, they can be shown as the simple soldiers, pilots, or sailors that they were. do it for this episode of the snowman podcast i hope you enjoy listening to it resources used in this episode include exploring the bismarck by dr robert ballard wikipedia.com forward slash german battleship bismarck i know folks a lot of you don't like wikipedia i'm saying go to this site for just the basic info of it if you want more check out dr ballard's book you can also check out History Channel's documentary, The Bismarck. National Geographic has done a documentary on The Bismarck. Both of those include interviews with uh, survivors 
from the hood and the Bismarck. Very, very well done. Phenomenal footage is shown in ways that I can't even uh, begin to show you how the battles actually were. They show clips of the Bismarck firing its massive guns. Then they also show clips of the Bismarck when it was in flames about to go down. It is just remarkable. Check out those documentaries. I cannot encourage you enough. Check those out. Um, also, you can check out uh, www.mir.coms.uk forward slash Navy Veteran 102 recalls the Bismarck. As always, I hope you enjoyed hearing today's story. Please share with your friends and family. You can find me on iTunes and Spotify. Just type in the Snowman Podcast and look for an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now, yeah? You know, back when I was a kid, I wanted to join the Navy. But that ship has sailed. (laughs) All right, all right. I'll just see myself out.